0: I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Delph. Hey, I'm Mike Sheridan, and you're very welcome along to another episode of The Delph. My guest today is former Secretary of Defense under the Trump administration, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper has written a genuinely excellent book called The Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. The book makes a point of laying out the scale of the job Secretary Esper had in front of him, especially given some of the much needed changes he wanted to make in the US military. As Secretary, he was in charge of almost 3 million people, their livelihoods, the operational aspect to all of that, including taking care of military families, something that was clearly important to him. Uh, Secretary Esper has also served in combat overseas. He's a graduate of West Point. He also, I was surprised to learn, is the son of an Irish mother. That's Cork taking over the world again. This is an exclusive interview for Ireland with Secretary Esper who I think at least really gives a marvellous insight not just into the job, but into the fractured nature of American politics at the moment, the war in Ukraine and the threat of domestic terrorism. Enjoy the conversation and remember, you can listen as a podcast or watch on YouTube and don't forget to like, subscribe and review if you're listening as a podcast. I was actually, I was really surprised in the, in the first, in the first couple of chapters of the book, you mentioned your mother's Irish heritage. I wasn't expecting to hear uh, me ma in a book yeah. from a former defense secretary. So that, that gave me a laugh. Yeah,
1: the family's from County Cork. It's uh, Reagan and uh, they, I've been to Ireland a few times and she's been back to where the family is from. And so it's, uh, you know, we, we, she and the rest of the family uses a lot of those types of words, you know, it's, it's very Scotch-Irish.
0: Scotch Irish. Have you yeah. been over here much, or have you gone over here at all? Uh,
1: I, I have, but it's been many years. Uh, last time I was over there was the early two thousands or so, uh, to both Ireland and then Northern Ireland.
0: And have you done any press for the book with any Irish outlets? Because I really enjoyed the book; it's such an engaging read. I,
1: I've done a lot of press, but not with any Irish media, if that's what you're asking.
0: Oh well, that's well. It's an honor to be the the first, I suppose, Irish outlet uh, to be interviewing you. Because, as I said, I've had a few. Um, former administration people on from Trump and, and otherwise, and I think this is the most enjoyable, most engaging book I've read. Uh, don't tell John Brennan or John Bolton that. But
1: well, <laughs> I won't tell them, so, but thank you.
0: So yeah, like one of the first things that occurred to me while reading the book was the scale of the job that you have as Secretary of Defense. You're in charge of 2.8 million people, their livelihoods, all the operational things that go with that, how do you even begin to start your day every day, knowing what's? You know, I mean, it's essentially it's a small country, right? You know, it's
1: uh, it, it is quite enormous, and if you think about it too much, it'll it'll uh, <laughs> you know take your breath away in some ways. But I was blessed with a great team of both uh, civilian and uniform leaders who were experts in their in their career and their profession, and uh, acted with integrity and uh, were quite capable. And I try to build a really inclusive team environment, as you read from the book, bringing everybody into the room to make sure they knew uh, what I was planning, where I was going, what my intentions were, et cetera. And, uh, and just relying on them, the professionals, uh, again, both civilian and military, to really carry out the tasks of the department and to take care of our people and secure the nation and all those things I write about in the book.
0: And was it, were you surprised? I mean, maybe I'm wrong and tell me if I'm wrong, but there was a little bit of frustration in terms of the red tape that's involved with getting things done in a, in, in a job of, of this size. Were you surprised that it took that long for simple things or things that at least on the surface would appear to be simple? Well, it's more
1: than just a little bit. And we were talking earlier, my mom would say a wee bit. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, and I still am frustrated by the bureaucracy because I think uh, it prevents uh, really bold things from getting done quickly. And we continue to experience this today at the Pentagon with regard to bringing in cutting edge technologies into the Department of Defense for our warfighters and for our allies and friends abroad who rely on us for, for many of those things. And it's, uh, look, on one hand, there's, there's a deliberateness to uh, staffing things through a bureaucracy and making sure all, all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed and the lawyers have looked at it, but it, it can't become such a, procre- a process that it becomes debilitating. And in many ways, that's what we have.
0: And you kind of talk as well about building that, building the allies and building those, you know, right. whether it be NATO wherever it is. And that, that I, I'd imagine that that would be something that was quite difficult because were you aware at the time going into the job? I'm, I'm certain you were, that Trump was quite an unpopular president in, in a global sense.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I talk about this in the book when I was appointed Secretary of Defense, appointed now not confirmed yet. Uh, he had asked me about NATO, and I, in fact I went abroad, for example, and spoke about NATO and. I felt strongly that it was the greatest military alliance in history. I, was, I served as a young army officer in Europe uh, as a member of NATO, and I believed in it. So we, we just uh, I took a different approach from him on that issue. And it wasn't just NATO, of course. It was our allies in, uh, in Japan and, and in uh, Korea and elsewhere. But in, in my view, uh, allies strengthen us. And you know, Winston Churchill famously said, I quote him in the book, that the only thing worse than going to war with allies is going to war without them. And so uh, I think they're incredibly important, particularly in these challenging times, as we see what's happening with, uh, with Ukraine, uh, given the, the vicious attack by Russia and what's, what could unfold at some point in China or in, in, in East Asia.
0: And we're recording this on June 14th. So this, this one might take a few days to go out. But obviously, Ukraine is still quite a perilous situation with Zelensky and, and Putin and what's going on there. How do you think Lloyd Austin is doing, um, who is uh, the current Secretary of Defense?
1: Well, I like to elevate it up to the White House because at the end of the day, it's this is where the commander in chief takes the lead. Uh, I, I thought the response by the president initially was slow and mixed. I thought we should have put every sanction on the table immediately. I thought we should have never taken any military option off the table because, as, as I said nearly three months ago, you never know what's going to happen. You never know how brutal the Russians will become, how devastating. Uh, things can can happen and and what will be the moral outcry and w- will we be forced to act so i never take the military option off the table i thought we should have given them the mig fighters and 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 things like that but look at this point the pace has picked up i think we're i, I think we're doing a much better job i think we need to push weapons and equipment and ammunition to the ukrainians far more quickly particularly now in this very um, uncertain uh, you know uh, conflict in in the donbass where it seems to be going back and forth every day I think now is the time to get the Ukrainians what they need quickly if they're going to push back against the against the Russians and at least hold this to a stalemate for now.
0: Is there a sense of empathy on your part, knowing how difficult these decisions are? Um, and you go into detail on, on various other decisions like strikes on Iran and, and that type of stuff in the book. Is there a sense of understanding the scale and scope and the ramifications of those type of decisions and how and what's involved in the administration making them like that must be something that you appreciate more than most?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I thought of of it on a wide spectrum. So for example, you know, I was a soldier in the Gulf War, and I I experienced my share of combat. So I knew the impacts it would have on people and units and the military. But on the other hand, you also have to take a historical perspective as to what's happening in the world. And what does this mean? And what is the arc of history? You know, this conflict with uh, between Russia and Ukraine is more than just Russia and Ukraine. It's about autocracy versus democracy. It's about international rules and laws and norms in the 21st century you know we're we're not in the 18th century or the 19th century let alone the 20th we're in the 21st century and these things should not be happening we thought we had evolved beyond that so i think you have to keep that that full spectrum of things hap- uh, in mind at all times when you're making or considering decisions such as these
0: and when you were confirmed as secretary of defense you were confirmed by the senate from like it was a 90 to 8 are those days just gone now, which is, which is amazing, by the way, especially given the administration you were in at the time and, and everything else, Are those, is, is that kind of bipartisanship gone? Because I know Tim Kaine, uh, who obviously ran for vice president as well, spoke out as a Democrat, spoke out uh, in your favour. It just feels like it's gotten so, so fractured now that, you know, nobody will get that kind of uh, leaning vote in the future.
1: Yeah, I, I was really pleased to get that, not just uh, get 90 votes, but get it in the third year of a Trump term when I think only two or three others had, had received such a vote of support. So look, the, the Senate in, in our system needs to do its due diligence and 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 review candidates, nominees, if you will, and vet them properly. Uh, but the administration also needs to put forward strong people. So I hope we can get back to the, the point in time when there's a lot of consultation going on beyond between the two and you can get very strong uh, votes of support. Because for the nominee, what it means is that you have not just, of course, the president behind you, but you have the Congress as well, the the, uh, the representatives of the American people. And that gives you a much stronger hand going into an administration and going into your position. So I felt that I was fairly empowered to act upon what I told the Senate I would do. Um, and, and to begin with uh, implementing the National Defense Strategy and a variety of other things. So I do think it's important. I hope we haven't reached that point but you do see it happening. And it's not just with uh, appointees for federal departments, but you see it with judges as well.
0: Is the two-party system still working, do you think? Because you have people who are you know, Trump uh, supporters saying Biden's going too far left. You've got people who are Democrats saying Trump has driven the Republican Party too far right. Is there a space for a third party or is a two-party system as fractured as it appears to be at the moment Still, still the way to go, do you feel?
1: Well, most Americans are not on either end of that. Most Americans are squarely in the middle, and that's the silent majority, if you will. And uh, unfortunately, they don't speak up or at least act, uh, you know, as aggressively as they maybe should in the primary process. But look, I we are a two party nation. Uh, We've we've dabbled with a third party in the past. I think the key is that we need to figure out ways to make sure that the the wings of each party aren't driving uh, the the center, if you will. That and that involves how do you. How do you make reforms to the primary processes? How do you find good candidates out there who will kind of speak more to, toward that uh, moderate middle in both parties? Uh, and that's the, that's the part of our electoral system that can really get together and compromise and make change. Uh, you know, as, our, as I've spoken about in other interviews, you know, from my book, I consider myself a Reagan Republican. And Ronald Reagan was a staunch conservative. But that didn't mean he wasn't willing to reach across the aisle. He famously worked with Tip O'Neill. The democratic house speaker of congress and on any number of things and uh, reagan was always famous for saying you know uh, take the 80 percent you know don't push for 100 percent." and too often these days you have you know the far left and far right want uh absolutist 100 you know achievement on everything and that's where you you lose the ability to compromise
0: and is something like given some of the horrific mass shootings that have been happening uh, throughout the us over the past few years really something like domestic terrorism feel more like an immediate threat now than maybe foreign terrorists, than the fear of foreign terrorists coming in and uh, advancing another attack on American soil? You know, to
1: to the credit of our security agencies, whether it's DOD or Intelligence Community, Department of Homeland Security, you name it, we've we've done a a really good job over the past 20 plus years uh, keeping our, our nation secure from foreign terrorists. That doesn't mean it's 100%, it never is. You have to Always watch it and, and and deal with it and combat it. Uh, but we've had our problems with domestic uh, uh, domestic terrorism as well. I think what's top of mind these days uh, with the American people, though, are these tragic shootings that are happening in different parts of the country, whether it was uh, like Buffalo or uh, in, in Uvalde, Texas, or Tulsa. Those are really uh, tough. It's devastating, particularly when it deals with innocent children. And so, you know, we know that there's a, a deal possibly emerging on. Uh, on gun measures coming from the Senate. We'll see what happens, but I think that's top of mind for Amer- many Americans today, particularly parents.
0: That seems like one of those rare occasions that we were just talking about that it might actually be, fingers crossed, a bit of a bipartisan deal uh, come to fruition there.
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a really tough subject for folks too. I, I've said the last couple of years, the last several years actually, there's one area where there's been bipartisanship in, uh, in our country, in the United States, and that's been with regard to China and the strategic threat it poses to the United States and to, democr- to democracies writ large. Over the last four months, I think the Congress has really uh, come together and in fact led the executive branch on the issue of responding to Russia and supporting Ukraine. And now we have this latest uh, you know, issue where we see a bipartisan group of senators getting together on gun control. So we'll see where all this
0: goes. And you mentioned China throughout the book and uh, kind of along with Russia and you said China, China pacing threats and a strategic adversary adversary. Why is China, is that because of the scale of their military, the, the size of the country, their advancements in technology are, are kind of all of the above, it's just the size?
1: Look, it's all the above, and we can't forget that it's a single-party communist system uh, that uh, does not embrace individual rights and human freedoms and liberties. They oppress their people, they surveil them. Um, you know, there's no free media, there's, uh, the, or, yeah, there's no you know, freedom of speech or assembly, all those things that we value in the West. China and the Chinese people, all 1.4 billion of them don't have that. and many desperately, most desperately want that. So we've got to keep in mind that's the system. But the party that sits on top of that uh, great country is uh, technologically advanced, uh, probably the largest military in the world, uh, the second largest economy, and at some point they think it'll pass, surpass the United States economy. Um, you know, so all these all these features of China today are, are attributes that the Soviet Union did not possess, and look, it took us 70 years to, to grind down, and eventually see the Soviet Union collapse, and under the weight of its own, uh, you know, its own troubles. Uh, that's not China, and so it's a far greater adversary that we face in the future. And look, I say that I don't. China doesn't need to become a threat to us. Uh, China's going to rise. I'd like to see them rise, though, within the international system that served us all so well for 70, 80 years. And by the way, it's that same system that allowed. The Chinese people in the 70s to really come out of the, the the dark Mao period and really experience tremendous economic growth. They brought 400 500 million people out of poverty because they p- work within the rules, the system, the trading network, and everything that we, the West, built uh, since the end of the Cold since the end of World War II.
0: And it's I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, Secretary. I really appreciate the time. Of course, given what's going on right now in the U.S. and this kind of primetime aspect to it is a bit mind-boggling to, to us here in Ireland, but looking at the January 6th committee and, and people that are testifying, when all of that, when that horrific day was going down, were you, I don't wanna say, I don't wanna say surprised and be crass, but were you surprised at the president at the time, at his reaction to it?
1: Well, I was surprised at everything that happened. Uh, I mean, who would think that in the year 20? 2021 at the time, that we would see an assault on the U.S. Capitol and not a foreign assault like we saw during the War of 1812 or an insurrection like we saw during the American Civil War, but an assault by hundreds of American citizens who were trying to disrupt the uh, the uh, electoral process in terms of the counting of the final votes that would formally declare uh, Joe Biden to be the fair and legitimate president of the United States. Who would have thought that we had seen that? But uh, you know, as I've said on other with other interviews, uh, President Trump bears responsibility for that. He's the one that, for for months, for at least several weeks up to that point in time, but continues to this day, uh, said that the election was not free and fair. He said that it was stolen. He summoned uh, these people to D.C. He incited them that morning, and then he failed to call them off once uh, the mob attacked the Capitol and pushed uh, legislators out of the building. So. He bears a great deal of responsibility, and I think there needs to be transparency about what happened and accountability, and the January 6th committee that's meeting this week and next uh, needs to kind of show that to the American people, and also, you know, they need to make recommendations on how do we prevent this from happening going forward. And look, in my view, the United States is the world's uh, oldest uh, and greatest democracy, and I think we have to live by example. We have to show others who aren't as fortunate to live in democracies like you do and I do that uh, democracies can survive and flourish and take care of their people and do the right thing. And I think, again, that's what's under threat right now. Uh, that's what uh, Russia and China are saying is that their forms of government are more effective and more efficient uh, than ours. And, and, and us, uh, th- that moment uh, was really a low point for American democracy. And we need, to, we need to learn from it and we need to do better going forward.
0: Are you surprised that there's still some people, uh, sycophants, whatever you want to call them, surrogates, you know, and I've had Sean Spicer on the show, but Sean's a bit more, <laughs> kind of plays both sides a little bit, though, Sean. But are you surprised that people are still speaking out uh, you know, from Trump's circle saying, oh, no, this election was still, this election was still fraudulent, even now, a year and a half later, nearly two years later?
1: Yeah, it is frustrating, but it, it will tell you that uh First of all, people will believe anything if they're told it uh, often enough and loud enough and convincingly enough uh, by, by false prophets, if you will. And, uh, and people will believe those things. In my view, you know, what it all comes down to is leadership. And we, we need uh, new leadership in, in, in this country, in our country, on uh, both sides of the aisle, if you will, that can really bring us together and uh, help chart a new direction. I'll go back to Ronald Reagan, who always spoke about the shining city on the hill and inspired Americans to be better than than what they were and to lift us out of the, uh, you know, some darker times of the late 1970s. And uh, so that's what we need. It, it, it all requires leadership. And if people have bad leaders, bad leaders will take them in, a, in the wrong direction. Good leaders will take you in a good direction. And so uh, that's that's what we need.
0: And finally, if you were given the opportunity, and if, I know because I haven't spoken to John Brennan, he was somebody who kind of left government and then came back into government. If you were given the opportunity by whoever is in charge, whatever party it is next, if it's the same party, to come back in and serve in that administration, would you leave the private sector and come back into government?
1: You know, I public services in my blood. I, I, I signed up, swore my first, first oath to the constitution at the age of 18 when I entered West Point and served 10 years on active duty in war and peace and then another 11 years in, in our reserves. So I, look, I never say no uh, to serving my country. It's, it's a great country and I feel proud and privileged to serve it uh right now though i'm taking a breather um you know they often say the worst time to ask your wife if she wants to have another child is right after she's given birth and uh, so i'm gonna take <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm gonna i'm gonna take a breather here for a while but we'll see what happens i mean if duty calls duty calls and uh, we'll, we'll see what's going on at the time
0: well the book's a sacred oath. again it's such an engaging read and an informative read and i hope people take more from it than just the kind of headline-driven stuff, the Trump-driven stuff, and and I'm sure they will. Secretary Esper, thanks so much for the time.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Take care.